heard it before, but what verse did that come from? <laughs> I was told you guys know the Bible. <laughs> what verse does that come from? It's Karin Anti Karitos. Anybody? Okay, this is a Bible. No, <laughs> I'm just having fun. Michael, what verse does that come from? That's one way to get a guy from following you. <laughs> oh, well, in John chapter 1, right around verse 16, it says, of his fullness. The verse before it says, the law came through Moses but grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ, or something like that. And then the next verse says, And of his fullness we have received grace upon, or grace answering to grace. The anti preposition. Anyway, see, that's about as technical as I'm going to get today. And the rest of the time is just embarrassing Michael as much as I possibly can for him following me around that. No, not a, not a bit. I just the only and the only addendum to your to the story this banter was when Jim Augsburger said, "Do you want to teach at Grace while I was finishing up my my work at seminary?" I said, "Sure," and I thought to myself, "I wonder if that guy is still there who <laughs> followed me around. I don't want people like that around me." I just want to teach the Bible. I don't want to, you don't have to believe I'm right, and I don't have to convince you I'm right. Uh, we all read the same book, what God wants us to do with our knowledge. Because remember, knowledge makes us arrogant, but love builds us up. What God wants us to do, even with our variations of views, is to love one another as Christ loved us. Is that correct? Even if we don't even like the person, we're to love one another as Christ loved us. So you might hear some things come out of my mouth this morning that you go, I don't know about that. That's the weirdest. Or I've never heard that and I don't know. Just love me anyway, would you? Just. And when you come up to, or during this time, if you say, hey, wait, because right now I'm a seminary professor and I don't preach sermons anymore. I gave that up. It's for the kids. It's for young people like Michael and, uh, and Dustin. It's for you. But uh, I teach still um, for Grace School of Theology. It's an online international school. So my students are from the Philippines and from Kenya and from Romania. And, uh, um, it's like being on the mission field except not, you know, because it's all, you know, like a Zoom kind of thing. So there's all my students, and some are even from the United States. And it's a great privilege to be able to uh, teach the Word around the world every Monday night and every Wednesday night. This coming winter session, I'll be teaching uh, Christian spirituality and the Book of Romans again. And for the 400th... No, uh, (laughs) But it's nice to do a class over again because you finally start to learn it yourself. It's like, whoa, now I know what this is all about. I wish I could take all those other classes I did back and retell those people what it probably really means. But you know how that is it's if you've ever taught Sunday school or anything and then a year later you go, ha, boom, click, bang, uh, what a hang. Um, that was a line from Jimi Hendrix song, by the way. Uh, but those of you who are former hippies would know that. I, you know, I had the, the job of like, I've got one sermon, and he told me I had at least 15 minutes. So I thought, okay, I got it. What can I teach in 50 minutes? Uh, and I got the whole Bible. I mean, I want to teach everything. I mean, like, what's the most important thing I could tell a group of people who I'll probably never see you until we all are standing before the Lord? And what one thing would I want to leave with you? Certainly, 
no hidden gem like Karin uh, Anti Karitos. I mean, who cares? You just sang it, and that's what makes sense. But what one thing could I do? And I thought, well, I remember when a professor asked me way back in the 1971, he said, if you were on a, stranded on a desert island and you only had one book of the Bible to have with you for the rest of your life, what book would it be? And I began to think, well, you know, I love the book of, I love most of the books. There's some books, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily sit there and read Song of Solomon every day. But, uh, you know, but they're all, they're all inspired. They're all important in their canonical context. But uh, what one book? And I thought, well, I love teaching Galatians. Because in Galatians, you, you've got the testimony of the gospel, which is chapters 1 and 2, where Paul reviews how it came to him by revelation of Christ and, and how it transformed his life and how the church embraced both his message and Peter's message as they went out. And... And then our position in Christ and the testimony of the gospel and the promise behind the gospel, which is the Abrahamic covenant. And then Galatians has the, the practice of the gospel, which is walk by the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And I go, boy, we could study Galatians. You just did. <laughs> and I said, and another key book for Christ, all Christians to know is the book of Ephesians. By the way, Colossians is... The, the younger brother of Ephesians or sister if you're into things like that and um, there are a lot of parallel passages but the book of Ephesians is all about God's great work toward us so that we might live in them you know Ephesians 2.10 says that we're his workmanship well that's chapters 1 and 2 uh, he elected us, He redeemed us, He adopted us, He indwells us, He regenerated us, He exalted us to the right, to the heavenly places. We're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus on the basis of good works which God did so that we might live in them, and that's chapters 4, 5, and 6. Where here's how you live because of what God has done for you, right? We could do Ephesians. You just did. <laughs> And I said, another essential book for the Christian life is uh, the book of Hebrews. Because it's the book of Hebrews where he, whoever wrote it, and we're not going there this morning because uh, there's no answer to that, but whoever wrote it understood um, a lot about the Old Testament and what God was doing there. And he also understood a lot about Jesus. He was greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. I just took you through the first five chapters. He's the high, our high priest over a new covenant with an indestructible life, ex- exercising his priesthood in the heavenlies because he couldn't be a priest on earth because that belongs to the tribe of Levi. He's the one who enacted the Day of Atonement by taking his sacrifice himself through the veil in the heavenly tabernacle and presenting himself as the finished sacrifice so that the Father could accept it on behalf of the people. And as he came the first time with reference to sin, he's coming back out of the veil the second time bringing salvation. And those of us who wait for that go, yes! Right? We could study Hebrews. You just did. <laughs> and uh, then I thought, oh, but First John. Now, now here's where you're going to really disagree with me. Because most people see First John as a book authenticating our salvation experience. I don't see it as a book authentic- authenticating our salvation. I see it as a book authenticating our fellowship. I believe that the Apostle John wrote that as a commentary on the Upper Room Discourse. See, his last night with Jesus, when Jesus did a lot of teaching, is recorded in John's 13, 14, 15, and 16. And when you read 1 John, you read, here's a guy who was right there, and now he's explaining it to the church at Ephesus, because that's where he was an elder. He was an elder in Ephesus. And uh, 
he's explaining it to these folks. And you, as you start comparing John, Johannine Gospel upper room and First John, you're realizing he's saying the same thing. And the very first chapter of First John tells us, I write these things so that your joy might be full, and our, joy, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. And then he says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Christ continually cleanses us from all sin, right? Purifies us as we go along. And you go, the whole book's about fellowship. And he does it in four cycles. Like, walk in the light. Well, what does that mean? Well, he tells you in chapter 2, walking in the light is loving your brother. And then he repeats the same theme in chapter 3, that if you hate your brother, you're walking in darkness. And if you love your brother, you're walking in light. And then he gives the two commandments that Jesus gives. What are the two commandments of the Christian life? There's not ten of them, there's two. Believe... And love one another. It's chapter 3, verse 23. If you don't like it, look it up. John said it. I'm just repeating it. Right? Those are the commandments. Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. Right? John 13, 34, and 35. The new commandment is love one another. When Paul repeated that commandment, he says that commandment includes all the other commandments God could have ever invented And he does that in Romans 13, right? Owe nobody anything except to love one another, for love is the fulfillment of the law. Whatever commandment, and he lists about four of them, five of them there, and he says whatever other commandment there is, it's fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of Christ. It's the guiding principle that the Spirit of God will use to govern your choices in life. It's not about, and it goes down to even what clothes do I wear today? I've got a bunch of believers. Believers can be really weird. Sorry, I know you don't want to be weird this morning, but you are. Because you're in a small minority of the human race. That's weird already. You're a peculiar people, Titus chapter 2, right? And you're zealous of good works. What could be weirder than that? You're called not to be the cops of the truth. You're called to be the purveyors and the ambassadors of another kingdom. You're from another place altogether. Yeah, there's politics. You're you're hoping to vote a certain way on your amendment. And we in Arizona already know what your amendment is about. And the, t- the tricky wording they've got going and how they... Anyway, but that's not our kingdom, is it? And no matter how that vote goes, who's in charge? Yeah. So I could have taught you First John. <laughs> I just did. Any questions so far? So what book should... If, if on a desert island... I have long introductions. Actually, I have long sermons. And Michael, when you said take... Oh, Dustin, you said take as long as you want. Do you know my evening classes are three hours long each? And so I take one five-minute break at the hour and a half mark, and then we go back and do another hour and a half. So be careful what you let me do, because my inner body clock thinks... Three hours. (laughs) And I do it every time I've got an audience in front of me because that's the job or that's the ministry. At any rate, so where was I? Um, So you're on a desert island and you only have one. Now you don't have the whole book. You have one book out of this. Well, as a systematic theologian, There's a debate. Do you start with the Bible as the most important doctrine or do you start with God as the most important doctrine? And the answer is yes. 
And you're never going to solve that. It's just, think about that for the next five years. You, you won't come up with a conclusion. Because if you start with the Bible, the Bible is only as credible as the God behind the Bible. And if you start with God, you don't really know anything about him and, except what the Bible says. So you're going around and round and round, and you never get to anywhere. So the answer is yes. But I like to start with God because I already presume the Bible is his word. And so I think, well, it's got to be a book that really tells us about God, even before anything else existed, like his sovereignty, his plan, his, his wisdom, his greatness, his grandeur, his perfections. So it's got to be a book to start that's all about God, you know, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the 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 wisdom and plan of God. And there's a book that centers in on that, like really almost like no other book. Then you've got to have a book that talks about humanity in in our raw essence. And boy, there's a book that spends a couple of chapters talking about humanity in our raw essence. Humanity that doesn't have the Bible but has a conscience which is God's law written in their minds and hearts even though it's obscured through the presence of sin and how we violate our conscience probably before breakfast every day of our lives even as believers. We don't get very far, right? I always ask classes, any of you lived up to your own standards today? Forget God's standards. Your own standards. Anybody lived up to your own standards today? And I've never had a person raise their hand. And the one person that did, I buried him out in the back of the churchyard. And they haven't found his bones yet. So I'm... uh, This is being recorded, right? I did not bury anyone. There is nobody's bones. And please don't call the authorities. That was a joke. But... Nobody even follows their own conscience. And this book talks about the conscience of those without the law. And then there's those who have the the Bible. And it even makes things worse. How many of you follow this perfectly every day? Even while I'm praying, I'm violating this book. Right? Like the old farmer, this is an old, 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 old illustration from the Spurgeon era, but the farmer met a preacher along the road, and the preacher had, uh, the farmer had a team of horses, and he said to the preacher, if you can pray for five minutes, you can have all these beautiful horses. And the guy said, no problem. And he started praying, and a minute into the prayer, he goes, what kind are they? Think about that one. I know it's deep theology, but he couldn't pray for five minutes. We can't do it. We can't. But there's people with the law. In Jesus' day, those were the Jews. They had the law, and it was written on stone, but it was in scrolls in their synagogues, right? And they couldn't keep it. And then they made it even worse because their oral, their traditions, the Mishnah as we have it in written form, uh, their their Mishnah was like a nightmare. That's what got Jesus in trouble because he didn't care about their traditions and they did and next thing you know. So this book talks about that. But then... Not only mankind, but then you've got to have a book that talks about sin like no other book talks about sin. Not sin like don't do this and do, do this, but sin as a systemic entity. I'm always amazed at how Christians qual- qualify sin as things we do or don't do. Well, that's not what sin is. I mean, that's sin. But it's not what sin's about in Scripture at all. Sin is a is an entity that is part of our systematic makeup. It's a power with seemingly with its own mind. For instance, here's what sin does when, it, when you open your Bible and you don't understand redemptive grace. So when you try to live by commandments, listen to what sin does. This isn't just simply, I did this and I didn't do that. Reading from, I use the NET just because 
I teach internationals, and this is a smooth version. And if you have some questions about how it reads, I've got a Greek text up here, and we can sort it out. Uh, so I, I hope it doesn't get that technical. You're not graduate students, are you? Okay. Um, but it says, uh, I was alive once apart from the law, but with the coming of the commandment, sin became alive. Notice, sin has a life of its own. And I died. And it says, sin, seizing opportunity. So sin does things other than just simply, you know, qualify my action as being wrong or right. Sin is like this power. Sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, God's word, deceived me, and through it, I died. Sin is a systemic situation. So if I want to have a book, I want it to talk about God, I want it to talk about mankind, uh, with and without scripture, uh, I want it to talk about sin as more than simply activities or a failure to act, that it's a condition. And I want it to talk about, I want this book to talk about a, a possibility of hope. I want it to unfold God's plan in that hope and, and show us that how God in the Old Testament at a certain point after the flood and man had replenished the earth, it's second, a second reboot, if you would, as a, Adam filled the earth, flood, earth is empty, Noah, same words in the Hebrew, uh, fill the earth. Um, and so second reboot, and then by the time the earth got a little full, they started creating a tower called Babel, right? Genesis 11. And God saw that if, if mankind does his own thing, they will have no need, they will accomplish anything they want, obviously a godless society. And so God scattered humanity into various language groups, which became the nations, right? And according to Acts chapter 17, it says that God divided humanity into national boundaries so that in the frustration of those boundaries, they would grope and perhaps find God. That was Paul's message in Athens. And so we're in mess, we're in Language and ethnic groups, right? And what do we do in those groups? We fight, we have wars, and we destroy. And what do the people in the trenches do? They probably, some of them cry out to God. Just like God planned. And so, in Genesis 11, God scatters the nations. And God, in chapter 12, guess what he says to an old man and an old woman? He says, I'm going to create a nation for me. The other nations, they're out there. <laughs> and by the way, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, in a preferred reading, says that when he, God divided the, the peoples into nations, he then assigned the sons of God over those nations. So each nation had an angelic being, a son of God, to have jurisdiction over them. But according to Psalm 82, those sons of God violated God's planned for them and they became their own gods over those people oppressing them and dis- and destroying humanity with the oppression of we would say Satan and his minions and God says you should have had justice and fairness and mercy instead you oppressed I'm, you're going to die like men he said Psalm 82 tiny little one you can read it and before I even get to my next thought and see that God scatters humanity. He then starts with an impossibility. Uh, An old couple who cannot conceive a child. And so he brings out an entire nation from nothing. Romans chapter 4 says, God who can bring something out of nothing. And Abraham was confident that God could do what he promised. And that's a good definition of faith. We'll get to that maybe in the third hour. (laughs) 
I don't have to do anything. <laughs> now my wife might say otherwise. Uh, and so you've, you've got God creating this nation from an infertile couple, you might say. And it's a miracle nation. He gives them a land grant. He gives them parameters. He makes promises of a great name, a great blessing, a, a, a great name, a great nation, and a great blessing. Through you, through this, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now that comes up later in the New Testament, uh, especially in the book of Galatians. That's the first mention of the gospel being preached to the Gentiles. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6, 7, and 8. You go, whoa, God's already got, he's got the whole plan going. And so, you've got this nation growing, and of course, 400 years later, where are they? Come on. Egypt. And in Egypt, God performs some signs and wonders and squashes the, one of the, a lot of those sons of God and the beliefs of the Egyptians and drowns an army in the sea. Paul likens it to baptism. He says they were baptized into Moses through the sea. Where does he say that? First Corinthians chapter 10, round verse 1, 2. So Paul's making this analogy, this connection. He says the, 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 escape, the escape from Egypt with the first Passover, that was Israel's redemption. They're saved nationally. Not every person in Israel, but they're saved nationally. Now you've got, scholars say, between one and four million, six million people wandering the desert with no rules. That's a recipe for disaster considering the nature of sin and the nature of humanity the way it is. And so what does God give them? Sinai. I know you're all like what does he want? You can't fail this test. Just blurt it out. He gives them the law. Right? Okay, thank you. It's really simple. These are really simple questions. I think. They're probably simple to me because I know the answer. But, um, so, he gives them the law. And now they have a constitution. Right? It's first and foremost. Everybody, oh, the law this, the law that. But it's a constitution. They now have a government. And the law includes a court, yeah, the priesthood. And they're, they're, there's no king except God. It's a theocracy. He's king. And the, the priests who mediate the king to the people. And there's a tabernacle based on the pattern found in uh, the heavens, according to the book of Exodus. And... You've got these people with a constitution. It's a means of fellowship with one another and with God, right? It's a means of uh, prosperity or or, uh, jurisprudence. It's a means of uh, protection. uh, You've got to keep that in mind. God gave the law to protect people. uh, As it says in Galatians chapter 3, why the law then? He said it was given because of transgressions. I mean, they would have probably self-destructed and scattered because they had no rules. And so he gives them a law to protect. And what's God really protecting? Yes, the people, but he's also protecting the promise he made to that elderly couple that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the promised son, by the way, isn't Isaac. Who's the promised son of the Abrahamic covenant? It's Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.16 says the covenant was, the promises were made to Abraham and to his descendant. It does not say descendants referring to many. It's referring to one, namely Christ. And you say, yeah, but seed can be a collective word. Seed can be referring to a whole bag of them or it can be referred to one little seed. And yet there is a passage in Genesis chapter 
22, where after after Isaac is offered up on an altar, the Masoretic text says that um, that he will be at the... Oh, I'll just read it. It's a singular he. His enemies. Singular. It's a... um, Pronominal suffix. I got a Hebrew scholar there. You got to say something Hebrewish, right? And it's singular. Yeah, okay, look it up. Uh, around verse 18. All your versions say their enemies. It's a singular pronoun, his enemies. It's referring to one person. I think Paul was playing off of that and saying it's referring to one. Namely, Jesus. So, the, the promises God made through Abraham and preserved in the law, protection, is now pointing towards the person of Jesus Christ. The law was never given to save. When did Israel get saved as a nation? Yeah, when they got released from Egypt. That was their release. What's the model so far in Old Testament? What's the model from Torah? What's the model for justification? Works or faith? Faith. Because how many hundreds of years before the law did Abraham believe God for about 400 years? had nothing to do with keeping the Ten Commandments. It had nothing to do with keeping the law. It had nothing to do with good works. It's just Abraham believed God. Not believed in God. There's a world of difference. A lot of people believe in God. The question is, do you believe God? Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him. His faith was counted to him. Reckoned to him as righteousness. Reading the law, everybody should have understood that. But what happened? Over the period of time, the law protected the people, but they, the law also projected something in the future. And so the prophets came along, the psalmists came along, and they talked about... Did you find it yet, sir? You're, around verse 18, it's a singular pronominal suffix. But it's your enemies. Look at the pronominal suffix, his enemies. It says his enemies. Thank you. Learned that in school, I did. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yeah, is it verse 17? Okay. Yes, that's right. Your English version will say their enemies. Except for. Maybe the ESV. Uh, check me on that. I think the ESV might say his enemies. But the Masoretic text says his enemies. I don't know why they change it. I talked to Alan Ross about that and he goes, eh, well, you know. Anyway. So now we've got the prophets talking about something that's yet future. you got them living under the law, but they're talking about something that's going to happen in the future. Something radical like God's going to give his people a new heart. God's going to give his people his spirit. God's going to give his people a servant that dies for their sins. God's going to give his people this, this, this. Right? We know that Isaiah 53. uh, A lot of passages in Isaiah. Too many. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to be the prince uh, of peace. He's going to be filled with the spirit. He, uh, Isaiah chapter 7, uh, 9, and 11. He's going to be the servant who uh, is a light to the Gentiles. He's going to be the one who's stricken for our iniquities. He's going to be raised from the dead. He's going to come back with a vengeance. Isaiah 63, I think. That's... There will be a vengeance of the year of the Lord, Isaiah 61. All that's in there, it's in Jeremiah, same thing. New covenants coming. Not like the covenant I made with your forefathers when they came out of Egypt, but I'm going to write my law on their hearts, not on a rock. And your sins I will never remember again. 
Right? And then Joel comes along and says, After these things, in the last days, I'm going to pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And Peter quotes that one at Pentecost, which gets a lot of people arguing with each other. But, you know, it was for our comfort and our consolation that God has promised something. He protected the promises. He protected the line. He then brought about the provision of everything, and we call those the four Gospels. It's about the life, the birth, life, and death, resurrection of the promised son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the promised son of David. You know, the very first verse of Matthew says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Boy, did he connect the dots fast. Right? That's Jesus. So if I'm stuck with one book on an island, I wanted to talk about all this stuff. I want to talk about God and His plan. I want to talk about the flow of human history and as it relates to our redemption, right? I wanted to talk about humanity at our raw essence of wretched, wonderful wretchedness. Helplessness. Hopelessness. Because you can't read, I'm going to give you a hint, Romans chapters 1 and 2 and part of 3 and say, wow, aren't we great? (laughs) No, you read that and you go, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. We've altogether become unprofitable. We have the poison of a venomous snake under our lips. We're like open sepulchers. We're graves. We're dead man's bones. We're unclean. We're unfit. And then he says something that kind of really throttles you. He says, but now, see the Jews were all hung up. The righteousness of God is reflected in what? Body of literature. If you wanted to know about the righteousness of God, what would you have read as a Jew? You would have read Torah. And they made it into this massive impossibility. Well, Torah was already impossible. You couldn't go a day without violating. You already admitted you can't even keep your own standards, let alone God's. If the law should teach you anything, yes, it kept you safe. Yes, it was your government. Yes, it had a lot of neat ceremonies that people like to practice today for, as a Gentile, I don't know why, but none of that's bad unless you're trusting doing those things to save your soul. Which according to Romans chapter 9, what was the mistake the Jews made? That the Gentiles didn't even understand you could do wrong? Here's what, and by the way, as a church, the Gentiles have repeated the same mistake. But listen to it. Uh, what shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue the righteousness of God obtained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, even though they pursued the law of righteousness, it's a righteous law. It's holy, righteous, and good, chapter 7. Even though they pursued the law of righteousness, did not attain it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, as if it were possible, but they pursued it by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. What was the stumbling stone? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That just, you share that with somebody today, they go, it can't be that simple. They still stumble over that. What must God, what must I do to be saved? You ever look at the bylaws of some churches? I can't even do one of those things. I can't even show up to a meeting on time, let alone keep the law. And then you've made the law a law of laws. And then we read the epistles. How do we read the epistles? As though every one of those Reflections of the law of Christ, you know, let no bitterness and let no. We, we make those into lists. You know what I did as a young believer? I had a notebook, my prayer notebook, and I listed every sin that I could find in the Bible. It was six pages long. And I prayed over every one of those items on a weekly basis to make sure I wasn't guilty of any of them. I think doing that made me guilty. It did make me guilty. 
What did it remind me of? Sin! Right? It reminded me that I've got bitterness. And what should that have told me? You can't save yourself. And so what does Paul say? He says in Romans chapter, after this wonderful Resume of mankind, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery are in your paths, and the way of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, then he says, now we know that whatever the law says, that's kind of all-inclusive. Whatever the law says, what does the law say? Whatever it says. Right? Whatever the law says. Those of you who love the Ten Commandments and want to keep them for salvation, listen to this. Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Yes, Michael. Oh, chapter 3 of Romans, verse 19, I started, and I'm in verse 20 right now. So, scholars debate what role does the law have? What role does grace have? Churches have spent centuries trying to mingle law and grace. They, they even, I mean, we fight, we still fight over it. That's, that's godly. I mean, right? And we still fight over it. And you're going to listen to this and you're going to say, I like a lot of what I say, but I disagree. You know, we're going to still fight over it. But listen to these words and try to understand the simplicity of Paul's argument. He has just spent two and a half chapters saying that mankind without the law is guilty because he can't keep his own conscience and mankind with the law violates the law at every turn. And that there isn't anyone righteous, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile, there's none righteous. And to summarize all of this, the work of the law primarily as a constitution was to say, you can't do this. You need something outside of yourself. You need something more than your own guts and determination. I'll prove it to you. How many of you have always kept the speed limit? You didn't even keep it coming to church this morning. You know why? There's the law. It says, speed suggestion, 35 miles. Now, that's a law. Right? Speed limit. It's powerless to make you do that. The determination to keep the speed limit comes from where? You. And, you know, you look around and you go, 40 is fine, everybody's doing 40. On the interstate, driving here from Phoenix, everybody's doing 85. So you put your speed, your cruise control at 85 and let the radar adjust your speed based on how close you get to the one in front of you. I got one of the, it's a rental car, I got one of those radar deals where it slows you down and speeds up. It's pretty cool. I thought the car was braking every time. I had to get used to it. It took me at least five seconds. But look what it says. It says, but now we know that whatever Now, verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, for no one, no one is declared righteous before him by the works of the law. I, I I don't have anything more to say about that one. How many people are declared righteous by being good? None. Because there's no good. That's Pastor Ed. That's your pastor. Dustin, sorry, dude. And the rest of you. (laughs) Right? This is important. Now I've got, I only got one book to take on this island. I want to know about God. I want to know about me. I want to know about sin and why I keep wanting to do the very things I don't want to do. 
I want to know about God's law and what role it really has. I want to know, since I can't keep it, what God has done because I can't keep it. I mean, I, I, give me some hope. Let's keep going. It says, For no one is declared righteous. That's justification. That's essential. That's what Abraham got when he believed God. No one is declared righteous before him by works of the law. For through the law, this is a no-brainer, comes the knowledge of sin. Did you keep the speed limit on the way to church this morning? Sinner. Sin. Sorry. I, I didn't write the book. I didn't make the speed limit. I would have said, question mark. <laughs> Do what's safe. Go with the flow. You know, that would have been my law. Go with the flow. Don't go too fast. And we'll weave in and out. And don't make anyone else be in danger. Just go with the flow. If you go too slow, or if you keep the speed limit, <laughs> you know, you come up on that person and I go, what's wrong with them? And they're keeping the speed limit. And I go, they must be an independent Baptist. <laughs> That's an inside pastoral joke if you don't know what that means. <laughs> they only read. No. Michael, stop me. Never. No, I want to do it, but the Lord's saying, no, you won't do that. You see, I've already violated. <laughs> Here's the good news. Well, we're getting, we got more good news coming. We haven't got to the good news yet. So, through the law comes the knowledge of what? Sin. Even those who came out of Egypt, when they read the commandments and they were supposed to keep them, they had a they had a court system that could get them clean before Yahweh, and it was called the tabernacle. When you violated the covenant, you had a place to go to reset. You know, when I get a speeding ticket, don't get another one. With a delinquent payment. Well, so what do you do? You pay your ticket. That's the sacrificial system. In a nutshell. It doesn't save me. It restores me. Back to fellowship with the community. So even though a year and a half ago, I got my picture taken at a left turn by an automatic camera, and then two months later, I got a thing that said you owe 300 bucks and you got to go to nine hours of traffic school, which costs another 150 bucks. You pay, you make your sacrifice, you go to the temple. <laughs> go, run with the analogy, run with the, with the metaphor here. You go to the, te- the temple, you offer the priest, he's called a judge, the payment. You do your thing, and he, and what am I? I'm restored back to good citizenship. Now you understand the Old Testament sacrificial system. It never saved you, never was intended to save you. The author of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. They do it every year, over and over again, as a remembrance of sin. I don't know why people try to keep that and that they live their life by that. Whether they're going to a church or a synagogue, they're, they're trying to work their way somewhere. But now, here, here's, here's what I think is like the pivotal moment of the entire book of Romans. Oh, by the way, Romans is the book I would take to the island. It says, But now... Nuni day, if you like Greek. But now. Not Old Testament. But now. Apart from the law. What? Apart from the law. Put the law 
Back there, it had its place. What was it? According to Galatians chapter 3, it was the child tutor to lead us to Christ. But now that the Messiah has come, we've been given the spirit of adoption. We're no longer children under a nanny. We're adults with the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. Right? As heirs with Jesus, waiting for the redemption of our body, Romans chapter 8, so that we can be with Him in glory, in, according to His gloriousness. Of, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although attested by the law and the prophets, in other words, the law talked about this, And the prophets talked about this. They didn't offer it. They talked about it. The righteousness of God, which is really what the gospel is all about. You're unrighteous. God gives you righteousness by faith as a free gift. The righteousness of God, apart from the law, although attested by the law and the prophets, has been revealed or disclosed. Namely, verse 22... The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Um, I've got a little gadget here. There's a... Since you guys are biblically literate, there's a Greek construction... Oh, I ran out of room. There we go. Stas to Christu. Is it up there? Oh, sure enough. Looks like Greek to me. <laughs> you know, you always hear that. That's Greek to me. Well, it is. Um, Pistos to Christu. Pistos is either faith or faithfulness. Check your lexicon if you have one. And to Christu is of Jesus, or of Christ. It's not in Christ. It's not about Christ. It's of Christ. Now, that's kind of ambiguous. And since Pistelus kind of has a sense of action, like believing or faithfulness is something, even though it's not a verb, there's, there's an activity to that description, like being faithful, faithfulness. The genitive serves as either the object of that activity, faithfulness uh, about Jesus, or faith, faithfulness of Jesus. He's the subject of that action. It's and and the NET rightfully and it, this construction appears about six times in Paul's letters. It appears also in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, where he talks about the faithfulness of Christ. Here, rightfully, they say, the righteousness of God has been disclosed through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. There's a new law, and it's a person, not a code. There's a new law. It's a person. And according to the book of Romans, you could say his whole life was that faithfulness, but according to Romans chapter 5, it's by his act of obedience. And what was it in Romans 5? It was his obedience to death by his faithfulness to the Father's will. God's righteousness was disclosed to humanity. Apart from... Commandments, apart from the law. Please let that sink in. Jesus Christ is my righteousness. Not my behavior. Jesus Christ is my acceptance in the morning when I get up before God. And he's the same acceptance when I go to bed at night. No matter what kind of a day I've had. Now, am I excusing sin? Well, Romans 6, 7, and 8 deal with that. 
But as a foundation to my life, I have already learned I can't keep my own conscience, let alone God's conscience. God had to do something outside of me. Somebody, according to the Gospel of John, who always did the will of the Father. He says, I always do those things which are pleasing to Him. John chapter 8, around verse 28, I think. He also said several times in the Gospel of John, I don't do anything on my own initiative. I only do the things which the Father directs me to do. He then said in chapter 12, I don't speak anything on my own initiative. I only speak the words that my Father gives me to speak. Now, does that mean he had sidebar? He didn't have sidebar talks with his disciples as they walked 100 miles? He probably did. But when he spoke... whether privately or to the masses. He only spoke in a way that reflected what the Father taught him to say. Even if he was talking about sports scores, which I don't think he did, but he was human. He got exhausted. He said, you know, he probably would have said, I'm really tired. I'm going to bed. Right? I mean, if I had to heal people all day long, I'd probably say that. He was human. He got hungry. I'm hungry. Go get me something to eat, please. Said that to his disciples. We're John chapter 4. So, he, he did every, he went through everything we did, but he was always doing it in an attitude and with the intention that the Heavenly Father would have said, what a faithful Righteous man. And he was born without sin, so he didn't have that systemic kind of... uh, That's another thing Christians argue about. You know, non-posse-pacara, posse-non-pacara. Let's leave that for the next time I come back in about ten years. Um, But you get it. You get the idea that it's Christ's faithfulness. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed. Even the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He's the righteousness of God. And then what does it say? It says something that sets me free. It says, for all who believe. And because he's been talking about Gentiles, chapter 2, and Jews, chapter 2 and 3, he says, and there's no distinction. Because all have sinned. Next verse. I'm reading ahead. All have sinned and what? Fall short of... We all know that verse. But did you see the two verses that preceded it? That changes every dispensation. That changes every attitude about my own self-righteous ability to do God's will. That changes everything. I stand before my Heavenly Father because somebody else outside of me was faithful. And I believed. And the Father said, as he said to Abraham, chapter 4 of Romans, notice what it says. Ah, But what does the scripture say? Verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his pay is credited due to grace. Not due to grace, which you sang about. But it's due to obligation. You work for it. Here's what you get. But to the one who does not work, that, that makes every lazy bone in my body rejoice. But it also sets me free from the burden of having to keep all the conf- chaos that I've heard every preacher, every verse, every, everything pour into my head that I'm obligated to do for God to like me. You know, I grew up in a family of law. And my dad's voice tries to trump the Word of God many times, even at 72 years old. Dad, you're in heaven now. You know better. But would you just dial it down a little bit? But he says, to the one who works not, but believes in the one who declares the ungodly righteous, 
his faith is credited as righteousness. And so Paul says earlier, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified as a gift freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed Him at His death as the mercy seat, accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over sins previously committed, this was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. There's that phrase again, faithfulness of Christ. I live because of Jesus' faithfulness. Brother and sister, if you if you don't have that as the cornerstone of your life, you're struggling as a Christian. If I had one book on a desert island, I want a book that deals with my conscience. I want a book that has a word from God that says, I know you, and I know it's impossible for you And I've dealt with it. And his name is Jesus. Right? Any questions so far? How much time do I have left? Lots? (laughs) It's not even an hour and a half yet. What? It's not an hour and a half yet. It's probably an hour. Have I been going an hour? Okay. I think we've probably had enough. But questions. 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 I I, I covered the whole Bible right up to Jesus and I stuck us right at the end of that story. There isn't anything you haven't heard before. But maybe you've wrestled with law. Your own guilt of not keeping God's speed limit. And you're wondering, maybe you're wondering because you know a little bit of how duplicitous you really are we all are you know and you think how can God still take me in you just read how he can do that it isn't your faithfulness at all it never was your faithfulness at all in fact your faithfulness is the reason why way before the foundation of the world Christ Jesus was the Lamb slain. It was always God's plan that you would be helpless and hopeless apart from Jesus. Always God's plan. He's not in plan B. You know, I often say to my students, I've probably said it to you, one thing you can't say to God is surprise. Nothing you ever did surprised God. Like, oh, I would have never picked that guy if I knew he would have preached that kind of a sermon. No. Jesus is my righteousness. The faithfulness of Christ is my salvation. It's the righteousness of God. It has nothing to do with me. I accept it as a gift. It changed everything. The law was finished. It did its job. What was its job? To get us to the Savior. If you want to live under the law, read Romans 7. Romans 7 is about anyone, saved or unsaved, who's trying to keep the law. You'll want to do things you can't do. You'll want, you'll want to not do things that you do. And you'll come to the end, verse 23 or 24 says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And the very next verse it says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And then he says the words we love to say, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemned sin in the flesh. It's all in there. I didn't make that up. That's just... That's my foundation. It's your foundation. 
Please, if you're standing on another rock, it's sand. It's sand. So if you're ever on a desert island, and the ship's going down, and there's your Bible, and there's pieces of a Bible, I'll pray that it's Romans. (laughs) There are a lot of great books. We covered a few of them today. But Romans tells you all that stuff. And I'll end with a little blessing from Romans. As Paul ended his discussion before he said hi to everybody. Here's what Paul said. And I'll say it to you as my closing prayer to the sermon. And there's a lot of nuances here. It was one of my first sermons when I was about 19 years old. They had me preach somewhere. Can you believe that? Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in Him so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Thank you for letting me have your pastor, thank you. And none of you left, so thank you. Um, God's blessings.